I came over a bit early this evening and uh, did some walking meditation. I, I like to do walking meditation before I give a talk some, when I have time. And it's, it's always a trade-off because sometimes my mind gets so quiet that I run the risk of losing the ability to actually speak. <laughs> and there's almost always a good chance that stuff will come out that I wasn't planning on saying. <laughs> and we'll see what follows from that. But I took the long way. I went up around the ridge to get here. And it was in the late, just as the sun was coming out and going down both, the earth rolling away from the sun. And in the morning it bows and rolls towards the sun. We see the sun coming up, but actually the earth is bowing down. Sometimes you can feel that movement. But I was walking along the paths and, and there, uh, the weather is, is conducive to uh, certain creatures being out and about. The slugs were out. There are these small, very dark colored ones that I'm particularly fond of. <laughs> I, made, I made very good friends with them last year when I was here on retreat. But people don't make friends with slugs that often. <laughs> They, slugs are dismissed. They don't get the respect they deserve, I feel. And I was reminded of a t-shirt. A friend of mine has a t-shirt. It has a, I can't remember all of it. It has a picture of a, I think it's an ant. And it has one, it has a smile and one hand up waving. And it's on a pathway. And maybe there's a foot or footsteps. And then the, the shirt says, mindful walking saves lives. <laughs> and I was thinking of that because the, the slugs don't, they don't know to stay off the trails necessarily. And so I was, I was saving lives by mindfully walking up the hill. And I thought, oh, it's worth doing mindful walking just for that, just because it saves lives. As I was coming past some bushes, there were uh, a few uh, ruby-crowned kinglets. They're tiny. Have you seen them? Maybe. They're not, they're around the size of a hummingbird, really little. <coughs> There's probably nothing really finer than a ruby-crowned kinglet. But then, as I was coming along, I saw a varied thrush in the oaks. Now there's a fine thing, a varied thrush. And yesterday I saw a black-shouldered kite. Really nothing finer than a black-shouldered kite. <laughs> and it was so achingly beautiful, the light coming through the trees and the little thrush, and the, lo the light was hitting the beautiful color there. 
And we, it's so beautiful here. And there's so much beauty and, and the birds and the other animals are here. And, and we get lulled into maybe a, a sense of, I don't know, we have to just be very careful because we need to be really careful, friends. There's, in some species of songbirds, there's been a 70% reduction in their numbers, mostly because of loss of habitat. And many species are gone now. They say there are no birds in hell. Let's be careful, very careful. I think it's uh, it's important and good that we that we take a realistic view of of times of the difference between what we could think of as what the Buddha taught and what has come to be known over uh, those many centuries as Buddhism and all of its flavors and various expressions as it's spread across the globe. All the way rolled and sailed across the ocean all the way here, this beautiful place. It's important to remember that the Buddha was not a Buddhist. And there's a lot of what's going on that's called Buddhism that he would not be interested in. And having spent a lot of time in countries that are Buddhist, I know that very well. He was very, uh, his teaching really is radical and it was radical, always will be. You know, and there's so many different, we have this image and we hear it's from maybe from the Zen tradition of the sense of that there are fingers that are pointing at the moon. And we talk about this in all the great traditions, there's fingers over there and they're pointing there, only it's here. The moon's always in here, these different fingers. And then some of them are, are beautiful, and charismatic and in my mind, the Buddha was a beautiful finger. We just have to be careful that we we look where he was pointing, not at the finger too much, because then we'll we'll build a temple around that finger, <coughs> and then we'll start gilding it, and then it's the only real finger, and the other ones are not quite as good, and so we have to knock them down or do something terrible to the ones who have a different finger. So we need to be careful about these things. But we can, we can find what the Buddha taught, it's in there. He, taught, he said, I teach one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. This shortened way of speaking about the Four Noble Truths, you could say, this core teaching, that's there in all the different traditions. That's the heart of things, understanding the nature of suffering and its cause, 
realizing the cessation through the abandonment of that cause and understanding that which cultivates and leads the path leading to this. This is the heart of things. And so we can find that. And the reason we have these teachings is because there, there have been those who, who've carried them along. I mean, it's so fantastic. For, for a long time after this historical Buddha died, these teachings were memorized, repeated and memorized and carried along by the, those disciples, those who had chosen to live that way, who practiced the way, realized through their own, through their own efforts, realized this, these truths and freed the mind and heart and they, they valued that. And it's said that in some of the, in, in places like Burma and Thailand, there are those who have memorized the entire Tipitaka. There's a volume after volume. This is like memorizing a set of encyclopedias or something. And many of my teachers, you could ask them a question and they'd wait and you could tell they were you know, going through that to see what was in the, in the suttas about that. And you refer back to it in their mind. And so it's been carried through. It was passed on by a voice and an ear and a voice and an ear. And then finally written down, but maybe 300 years or so passed before anything was written. So it's been carried along by those who have valued these teachings and, and put them into practice and realized the fruits. And many of these beings who've done this, these people, they have either been called or, or have called themselves Buddhists. And those of us here, we receive this benefit of this, of this teaching, which many consider to be priceless. I hold them in that way. To me, they're beyond any price. And, and there's this debt of gratitude that I feel that I think we can touch to those who have carried them forward since the time of the Buddha. And, and at the heart of this chain, it's like a chain of, it's like a hand to a hand. <laughs> like a breath and vibrations to an ear. And at the heart of that, there are those who've cho- cho- chosen over the years to live the simple life of an alms mendicant in this tradition, of a renunciate wearing the robes of the ordained sangha. There's a, a debt of gratitude I feel to that lineage no matter that there are all kinds of problems in that. And there, it is, uh, there is religiosity built into it that's not always so good. And a few years ago, I had the really good fortune, so lucky some of the beings I've had the chance to meet. There were many years of engaging with this practice and all the opportunities that I've had. I met uh, um, a nun, a bhikkhuni 
Kusuma, her name, the first fully ordained Buddhist nun uh, in Sri Lanka in uh, nearly 1,000 years. Because in this tradition, it's said that the bhikkhuni lineage, that it was broken, it was died out because of a break in the in this lineage. And there's been this resistance to uh, offering this full ordination in the Theravada tradition. And, and it's a it's a very bad and wrong thing, and the resistance to that. But, uh, Bhikkhuni Kusuma had done a, a study of showing, tracing the, the, the way the Bhikkhuni lineage had traveled across Asia and that it hadn't really been broken. And, and there's, she's received growing support and there is Bhikkhuni ordination happening now, slowly more and more, the restoration of that. And so this talk is dedicated to the ordained Sangha and specifically to the uh, Sangha of the uh, lineage of the bhikkhunis over these many centuries now. And in the way uh, that, that so many of them that I've been fortunate to meet uh, really exemplify um, the qualities of the Sangha. There's a chant, I'm gonna do it now, some of you know it, I'll do part of it. It's a chant that's done daily that uh, reflects on the qualities of the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, the Triple Gem. So this is, uh, do this chant and part of this dedication. And maybe at some point I'll actually get to my talk. <laughs> I know at least one or two of you know this and you can join me if you wish. Andamayam sangha bitutim karomase Now let us chant in praise of the sangha Yoso Supatipanno Bhagavato Savaka Sangho. They are the blessed one's disciples who have practiced well. Ujupatipanno Bhagavato Savaka Sangho. Who have practiced directly. Nyaya Patipanno Bhagavato Savaka Sangho who have practiced insightfully, Samichi Patipanno Bhagavato Savaka Sangho, those who practice with integrity, Yadidam Chatari Purisayugani Atta Purisapugala, that is the four pairs, the eight kinds of noble beings, Esa Bhagavato Savaka Sangho. These are the Blessed One's disciples. Ahuneyo. Such ones are worthy of gifts. Pahuneyo. Worthy of hospitality. Dakineyo. Worthy of offerings. Anjali Karaniyo, worthy of respect. Anutarang Punyaketam Lokasa, 
They give occasion for incomparable goodness to arise in the world. Now, history is is a story, and stories aren't always the same as facts. And much of the time, history is his story. That's what that word comes from. But there are her stories, her stories, and tell a few of those stories because these voices maybe aren't heard so often. And in the collection of this Tipitaka, the Pali canon, there's a, um, there are two, two small collections, the Terigata, the Teragata. And the word Terigata literally means elders and Gata is verse, elder verses, verses of the elders. Terry, or the Terigata, the, the collection of poems of the nuns, early nuns at the time of the Buddha, Terigata, the monks. I love the poems, especially in the, I love them all, the Terigata, maybe especially. There's this sense that they're just, they're just simple and direct and straight from the heart. And some of these uh, poems have the flavor, the sense quality of, of uh, an enlightenment poem. And they, they also have parts where they talk about the practices and the struggles and realizations that these uh, yogis encountered and, and realized on their, on their path and see the things that were hard and challenging for them, no different than us. And they're walking the same path. And in some of these poems, there are these clear descriptions of a moment of awakening. It's very beautiful to hear that. And there are many translations. There's a, a new one out that's quite lovely, but I'm going to be reading some poems, and I'm using a, a book called The First Buddhist Women, Poems and Stories of Awakening by Susan Murcott. And I really like, she did her own translations, I think. And... Uh, and I, I literally like uh, like the way she translated these poems. And, and we get a, a glimpse into the lives of these practitioners. And sometimes the stories and, and sometimes the poems seem to be kind of formulaic and you think, well, maybe uh, there was just this um, way you, we did that or they were added in in this formula or sort of mythical, some of the stories. They have the sense maybe a bit of being like teaching fables, some of them. But I think there's the sense that there's a, a really a kernel of historical truth in there and how never limited they give us a glimpse through a window into that time and place and the, the lives and the personalities of these, these early disciples who were real people like us. They had their difficult times and joys and sorrows. And it connects us, connects me, I feel, reading and hearing these to this lineage that we are part of. And we see that we are practicing the same teachings. It gives me faith that the, 
the, the teachings have come down that, that we can find that kernel of gold there. That's there. And we see in our own, through our own practice, that yes, it does, it is onward leading. And this, uh, when the Buddha said, I wouldn't ask you to do it if it wasn't possible, we see the truth of that. And so, you know, we're walking in the same footsteps and it's an inspiring reminder that we are part of that chain, human chain. And we're, we're doing our part, carrying these teaching forwards by practicing. Once long ago, there was a town, maybe it was a city, a small city named Kapilavatu. And some say that that town was named for this great hermit, Kapila, might have lived there because Kapilavatu means Kapila's ground or Kapila's place. And there are very few who know that name anymore, some scholars and historians, but they don't even agree exactly where it, where it was, the location. Some say it's here, some say there, but it's likely that it uh, was within sight of the great range of the Himalayas there in very northern India or southern Nepal. And this Kapilavatu, this city that no longer exists where that which was once great diminishes and fades away. It was uh, the, the um, center and the ruling uh, area of a, a clan called Sakya. And there was a queen there named Pajapati. And she, uh, Pajapati and her sister Maya were from a neighboring kim- kingdom called uh, Kolia. And they, they were from the town of Devadaha, the capital of the Kolian clan. These were clan, clan systems there in the governance. And when they were still in their youth, it was the custom, they were married to the king to cement relations. They were married to King Sudodana, who was the, the chief of the Sakyans. And, and so they moved to Kapilavatu from Devadaha. And um, Maya was the elder sister. And when, when grown um, and li- living there, she became pregnant at a, <coughs> at a certain time. And, and it was the custom then for that, um, that people would travel to their parents' home Young women would travel to give birth at, uh, at their parents' home. And she was traveling uh, to her uh, that way, traveling along when uh, labor came on. And so she went to this um, uh, a, guys, a garden, a wayside garden called Lumbini Garden. And uh, she gave birth there to a baby boy. And... Um, and so she went back to Kapilavatu because the baby had come already. And, and she suddenly died seven days after giving birth. And so the new baby's uh, aunt, Pajapati, younger sister, uh, took over uh, the raising of the, the baby and uh, raised him as her own first child. And later she had two of her own children. And this baby boy was given the name Siddhartha, Siddhartha in Bali. It means uh, one who accomplishes their aim. And most of us probably have heard that name. It's famous, remembered by many. This 
this young baby who was the prince. He became, eventually he became a great sage and teacher. He was known as the Buddha, the awakened one. Much has been written and said about him. Here in this hall, a lot of his story was told. It's said that sometime during the year after his awakening, he returned home to Kapilavatu at his father's request. And his foster mother, his aunt, was known as Maha Pajapati, Great Pajapati. There's an image of Pajapati on the table in back. Isn't it still there? I think it's still there. Is it there? Yeah. Maha means great. She was respected, her age and status as the queen. And and when uh, Siddhartha, the Buddha then known as, came, he, he gave a teaching uh, there. And it's said that Pajapati entered the stream of the Dhamma, realized the first stage of awakening, Sotapanna, Sotapatamaga. And some years later, she requested permission from her, her adopted son to enter into the homeless life under the discipline and training of his order. And, and with the help of the kindly Ananda, the Buddha's attendant, she uh, convinced the Buddha to give permission. There's a portion of a, um, an, an intervention by the kindly Ananda to help get this to happen. He went to the Buddha and said, are women able, Lord, when they have entered into homelessness to realize the fruits of stream entry, of once returning, of non-returning, and arahantship? These are uh, four stages of enlightenment in uh, one way it's viewed in this tradition. Yes, Ananda, they are able. Then, venerable sir, if women are able to realize the path and its fruit, and since Pajapati is your aunt and foster mother, and when your own mother died, she even suckled you at her own breast. It would be good if women were allowed to enter into homelessness. And the Buddha said, yes. And thus the bhikkhuni order in this tradition was started. And, and so Pajapati is honored and revered as the founder of the bhikkhuni lineage in the Theravada tradition. And so she became uh, an alms mendicant, put on the robes, shaved her head, got meditation instructions and she realized full enlightenment. And it's said that she lived to be 120 years old. She became a great teacher. So I wanna read her poem. It um, speaks in praise of the Buddha, grat expresses gratitude to her sister Maya as the Buddha's mother and recounts her realization in the ending of the cycle of birth, death, and rebirth. <clears throat> this is Mahapajapati's poem from the Terigata. Homage to you, Buddha, best of all creatures who set me and many others free from pain. All suffering is understood. The cause, the craving is dried up. The noble eightfold way unfolds and I have reached the state where everything stops. 
I have been mother, son, father, brother, grandmother. Knowing nothing of the truth, I journeyed on. But I have seen the Blessed One. This is my last body, and I will not go from birth to birth again. Look at all the disciples together, their energy, their sincere effort. This is homage to the Buddhas. Maya gave birth to Gotama for the sake of us all. She has driven back the pain of the sick and the dying. I love that line. Look at the disciples. All together, their energy, their sincere effort. This is homage to the Buddha. This is our homage to the Buddha. Our practice and the sincerity of our intention. I love that word, sincere. I don't know, but one derivation of it is, is from the Latin, sin, without, seer, wax, without wax. I used to um, be a sculptor and model maker. I, I worked at the California Academy of Sciences, the museum in San Francisco, and I made all kinds of models of you know, sea animals and giant bugs and dinosaurs and things. <laughs> and I and when I used to do sculpture before then, and when we were we would so you'd make a sculpture out of clay and then make a mold and then cast it in different materials because sometimes you have to use clear things or durable things and and uh, when you're after you've made a mold and when you're you're it's called laying it up when you put in the material. If you uh, take a little holiday, we call them holidays, little voids, <laughs> little times when you weren't quite there. And so then in the finished product, you could fill that in with wax. And I think it comes from ancient or old times when they would make bronze castings of, of sculptures and, and uh, little, little holes, you fill those in with wax. So a perfect one, sincere, no holidays, <laughs> steady. Mm. I hope I read more than just one of these poems. <laughs> so there are a number of poems that are um, in the Terigata by nuns who are uh, were either uh, students, disciples of Pajapates are directly connected with her in some way. One of these is by a nun named uh, Vadesi, who had been uh, Pajapati's nurse when, when she'd helped to raise her when she was young, so she was older. Find her poem here. It was 25 years since I left home and I hadn't had a moment's peace. Uneasy at heart, steeped in longing for pleasure, I held out my arms and cried out as I entered the monastery. I went up to a nun I thought I could trust. She taught me the Dhamma, the elements of body and mind, the nature of perception and earth, water, fire and wind. I heard her words and sat down beside her. Now I have entered the six realms of sacred knowledge. I know I have lived before. The eye of heaven is pure, and I know the minds of others. I have great magic powers, and I have annihilated all the obsessions of the mind. The Buddha's teaching has been done. 
25 years, not a moment's peace. That's how she was feeling then. You know, we don't, we think nothing's happening. We don't know. And all we can do, our job, someone said once that the heart and mind are filled with wisdom, mindfulness, love, one drop at a time. And all we do is we put in those drops. How many drops have you put in today? A lot. I don't care what you think your day was like. (laughs) And you don't know how full that bucket is getting because you can't see it into it. You keep putting those in, even if you feel like you haven't had a moment's peace. That's what we can do. There's a story about a nun named Patachara. And, and there's a lot of details somehow in her story, and there are very close parallels to the story of, an, of a modern uh, yogi, uh, highly revered yogi named Deepama. Some of you have heard of Deepama, teacher of some of our teachers. Her picture is down in the gratitude hut. People said to be around her was like being bathed in love and light. But she had so much tragedy in her life, she was paralyzed with grief. She lost her husband and maybe two of her children in tragic events. Deepama did, and this Patachara also. And Deepama was, said she was paralyzed and um, really near death. And someone sent her, she was, she had, her family, had, there had been a business. She was from Calcutta, Indian born. But they had lived in Rangoon, and someone sent her to uh, to the medita- meditation center. And sa- I think she said she had to crawl. She was so weak. She crawled in, <laughs> and she was given meditation instructions. And she progressed very quickly. Very a lot of parami. <laughs> Amazing yogi. So Patachara, she lost her, her children and her husband in a series of really tragic events. And, and in the final one, she's, left, she's stranded on the road having lost her, her, uh, both children and her husband. And she doesn't know what to do and she decides to travel back to uh, Savati, which was where her family home was. And she comes to the city and to the town and, and there's, she sees smoke burning and there's been this part of how this tragedy happened was these heavy, two heavy monsoon rains and, and flooding and uh, drownings that happened. And she comes through this storm and she goes back to um, Savati and, and she runs into someone and asks about her, her family and, and she's, there's smoke and, and the person says, don't ask. And she said, well, what happened? And she said, the, the house of your family collapsed in the storm and, and caught fire. And that's the smoke uh, of the f- funeral pyre. Of, of uh, So she lost those guys too, really bad. So she lost her mind with grief, it said, and she began wandering in circles, 
weeping and wailing and her clothing eventually became ragged and finally it fell off. So she was wandering around naked and uh, the townspeople were afraid and would chase her away. And it said that she was staying, uh, that the Buddha was staying in the Jetavana. We told stories about the Jetta, Jetta's Grove, where the, or I have anyway. But it was in, the, in residence there and, and Patachara came near and some of the people wanted to chase her away, but the Buddha saw that she could hear, he sensed that she could understand. And so he said, let her approach. And he said, uh, sister, recover your presence of mind. And it said in that instant, she, she came out of the uh, grief and the um, madness that had taken over her mind. She, and I love this, he said, sister, Dressing her as sister. And a kindly uh, person there gave her a robe to put on and, and she told him, Patachara told him her, her tragic story and he said, Patachara, it is not only now that you have met with disaster and trouble. In your many lives you have shed more tears for the dead than there is water in all the four great oceans. And he continued to speak and offer teachings and her grief subsided more and more. And by the end of the discourse, she had realized the first stage of enlightenment. Seems to happen a lot with the Buddhas. I used to think they put that in these stories to make the Buddha look good, you know. <laughs> People get enlightened hearing him. But I have to say, I have had such powerful experiences with some of my teachers listening to them teach that it's obvious to me that this is true, could well be true. And so she, she wanted to uh, join the nun's order and she became uh, known foremost in um, her study and understanding of the, the Vinaya, the, vinaya the, the rules um, that um, the nuns and monks live by. And she became a very skilled and charismatic, highly revered teacher in her own um, way. And there are more re references to her by other nuns as their teacher, praising and, um, and bowing to her teaching. I'll say, just read a couple of those. Um, this is from a nun named Chanda. Patachara guided me in leaving home, encouraged me and urged me to the highest goal and a group of 30 nuns who were students of hers said, we have taken your advice and we will live honoring you. And another Patachara named Patachara Pankasta said, Patachara pulled out the arrow that was hidden in my heart. So I'll read uh, Patachara's poem. It's, uh, there's, there's a bit about some of her struggles and there's this beautiful description of uh, a moment of awakening in here. When they plow their fields and sow seeds in the earth, when they care for their wives and children, young Brahmins find riches. I've done everything right and followed the rule of my teacher I'm not lazy or proud. Why haven't I found peace? Bathing my feet, I watched the bathwater spill down the slope. I concentrated my mind the way you train a good horse. 
Then I took a lamp and went into my cell. I checked the bed and sat down on it. I took a needle and pushed the wick down. When the lamp went out, my mind was freed. I love this. You can picture bathing, bathing of the feet and the water moving down the hill. And then and, and going in, sitting down and turning out the light. And in that moment, be, be mindful when you turn out the lights this evening. You know, she wasn't sitting, she doesn't say, I, I was sitting in full lotus. Started floating into the air. I was turning out the lights. to pick and choose here so I don't run on. This is a famous story. I'll tell this one. This is a story of uh, Kisa Gotami. Some of you will have heard this. Uh, may have been a distant cousin of the Buddha, the Gotami, related to Gotama. Kisa means thin. She was very poor may have been thin because of that. But she married this, married into a well-to-do family, this uh, son of a merchant, in, and um, also in Savati, same place, and moved in with his family, was the custom, and uh, wasn't treated so well initially, but um, eventually she gave birth to a son and received a, a place of more honor and respect and ease in the family. And so she was, she loved her little son and was especially attached because he was so uh, tied into her happiness and sense of ease and acceptance. But he, her young son uh, became ill and, and sadly died when he was just a little toddler. And she refused to accept that he was dead. And she convinced herself that he was just sick, really sick, and that if she could find the right medicine, he would recover. And so she carried the dead child in her arms and went through the village asking for medicine, begging for help. And people said, the child is dead, there is no medicine. She just refused to hear it and moved on to the next place. And, and so someone sent her to see the Buddha. And uh, again, in the Jetavana, and she ran to him asking if he knew some medicine. And the Buddha said, yes, I know a medicine. You have to get it yourself and bring it. And he said, go to the houses in town and bring me a white mustard seed from any house in which no one has died. And you know, white mustard seeds are very commonly used in, in Indian cooking. And, and so a lot of people had these. So she went to the, the town thinking if she could provide this seed that the sage with his magical powers could provide this this cure and and everyone so many houses yeah we have mustard seeds you can have one but when she asked if if anyone had died there wasn't any household where they said no one has ever died she said the dead are more numerous they're just told that the dead are more numerous than the living and so in in this process the truth came 
to her and and she um, she said, little son, I thought that death had happened to you alone, but it is not to you only, it is common to all. And so she carried her the body of her child into the forest and laid him gently down there. And then she returned to the Buddha and he said, did you bring me the mustard seed? Did you find one? And she said, done, venerable sir, is the business of the mustard seed. So she, she uh, was inspired to join the community of the nuns and she became uh, known for her uh, very renunciate way of living. And she realized full awakening. So her poem is long and I'm just gonna read a few uh, lines. The sage looked at the world and said, with good friends, even a fool can be wise. Keep good company and wisdom grows. Those who keep good company can be freed from suffering. We have to understand suffering, the cause of suffering, its end and the eightfold way. These are the four noble truths. And I have practiced the great eightfold way straight to the undying. I have come to the great peace. I have looked into the mirror of the Dhamma. The arrow is out. I have put the burden down. What had to be done has been done. Sister Kisagotami with a free mind has said this. Get a couple more in. So there was a nun who was living um, as, a, as a wandering uh, yogi. Apparently there were some women living that way as a wandering ascetic and she was one of them. And, and she was happened to show up when the Buddha gave the, the Satipatthana Sutta, the one that we've been referring to so much, this discourse that is the, the main uh, meditation instructions. And, and she um, showed up and, and was there when he gave that teaching and was very, uh, changed her life. And um, apparently she was cross and difficult and self-centered <laughs> as her in her wandering life. But um, she um, joined the nuns community. And, and again, I want to read this poem because there's this, again, a precise description of this moment of realization. Um, and it, it was this deep insight into impermanence. So often it's described in that way that the, the stainless eye of the Dhamma arose, thus that which is subject to arising is also subject to passing away. And that's not, not in this poem, I don't think. But she was meditating on, on the aggregates, the elements of mind and body. It just, it's so, I love hearing that, you know, these teachings that we are offering and that we're practicing, these are what they, they were doing that. They were contemplating in this way. Although I left home for no home and wandered full of faith, I was still greedy for possessions and for praise. I lost my way, my passions used me, and I forgot the real point of my wandering life. Then as I sat in my little cell, there was only terror I thought, this is the wrong way. A fever of longing controls me. 
Life is short. Age and sickness gnaw away. I have no time for carelessness before this body breaks. And as I watched the elements of mind and body rise and fall away, I saw them as they really are. I stood up. My mind was completely free. The Buddha's teaching has been done. So again, it was in the in the in-betweening, the standing up. It reminds me of another story, another poem. Another, and just read it quickly because it's another time when you might not think of someone having an enlightenment experience. This is from a, a nun named Dhamma. It'd be a nice name to have as a nun. And she was uh, quite elderly when she decided she could leave her, her family or life. And um, so she didn't ordain till she was quite elderly. So this is a poem for us old folks. Um, so her realization happened one day when she was returning back to um, where she was staying after alms round. She was quite elderly. I wandered for alms. I leaned on a stick. My whole body was weak and I trembled. Suddenly I fell down and could see clearly the misery of this body and my heart was freed. So she lost her balance and fell. That's when the mind was freed. So pay attention when you lose your balance. Okay, just a couple more to end the talk tonight. Now this one is from a nun named Sukha. But is Sukha is um there's a different spelling. There's sukha that we talked about that means kind of happy contentment or pleasant, like sukha, vedana, pleasant, happy. But this is spelled differently, pronounced very much the same. A name mean, but it means bright or lustrous or shining. And uh, she was born into a wealthy family in Rajagaha. These days it's called Rajgir. And uh, she heard the Buddha teach when she was really young and um, started practicing as a girl. And then later when she came of an age to do so, she became a nun. And she, um, she practiced diligently and became fully enlightened quite quickly. And she was very skilled and inspiring as a teacher and speaker especially, uh, really known for her beautiful speaking. And she had a lot of uh, eventually had her, a lot of her own disciples. And it said that one day she came uh, back to uh, where the nuns community was living after having gone out on alms round. And uh, she set her bowl down and before um, even eating, she began to uh, speak and to teach. And it said it was so beautiful that everyone was just enchanted stopped what they were doing just to listen to the beauty of her teaching. And apparently there was, 
there was a tree growing nearby that was so inspired that it uprooted itself and it went striding through the town <laughs> reciting a po- this poem and, and praising the eloquence of Sukha. So, in some, te- some teaching it said it was a tree deva that came down from the tree, but I like the idea of the tree <laughs> cruising around telling this poem. So this is actually the tree's poem about Sukha. <laughs> Oh, I see. I'm just checking, seeing part of the story. Apparently, um, there were a lot of tree spirits who were very fond of sukkha. There were other stories about other tree spirits um, drawn to her. And a, a tree spirit, another one, paid homage to her in this way. A wise lay follower gained a lot of merit. He gave a robe to sukkha, who is free from all bonds. But anyway, this tree that was walking through Rajagaha said this. What has happened to these people in Rajagaha? They are like drunks. They don't listen to Sukha preaching the Buddha's teaching. But the wise drink her words as travelers drink rain and never tire of their sweetness. Sukha, you are light because of your bright mind. Concentrated, free of desire, you have conquered Mara and his forces. Bear this body, it is your last. The wise drink her words as travelers drink rain and never tire of the sweetness. Sweetness of the Dhamma. Sweetness of the truth. So I'll end tonight with um, a more recent poem. And I... I, re- I think I read part of this in, uh, in February, so it'll be a repeat for some of you, but it's so beautiful. It's not a poem exactly, but it's some words by, um, from uh, a nun named Mei Chi Kao, who was uh, uh, in Thailand, lived from 1901 to 1991. She was a student of a uh, famous Thai teacher, Ajahn Man, and also of Ajahn Mahabua who died, I think Mahabu was 99 when he died. I got to meet him briefly when he was 92, and he was unbelievably energetic. (laughs) It was amazing what he was like at age 92. (laughs) And he said that Mei Kao was was fully enlightened. He was very, um, very impressed with her. So these are some words from, from her to end this evening. Body, mind, and essence are all distinct and separate realities. Absolutely everything is known, earth, water, fire, and wind, body, feeling, memory, thought, and consciousness, sounds, sights, smells, tastes, touches, and emotions, anger, greed, and delusion, all are known. I know them all as they exist in their own natural states, but no matter how much I am exposed to them, I am unable to detect even an instant when they have any power over my heart. In a perfectly still crystal clear pool of water, 
we can see everything with clarity. The heart at complete rest is still. When the heart is still, wisdom appears easily, fluently. When wisdom flows, clear understanding follows. The world's impermanent, unsatisfactory, and insubstantial nature is seen in a flash of insight, and we become fed up with our attachment to this mass of suffering and loosen our grip. In that moment of coolness, the fires in our heart abate, while freedom from suffering arises naturally of its own accord. This transformation occurs because the original mind is, by its very nature, absolutely pure and unblemished. Purity is its normal state. We'll sit quietly for a moment together and let these words fade away. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.